And welcome to Wednesday Breakfast. And uh, we begin by acknowledging that we meet and work on the stolen lands of the Wurundjeri people and the Bunwurrung people of the Kulin Nation. We pay respects to, our respects to elders, past, present and emerging, and acknowledge the continued resilience of First Nations peoples in the face of ongoing colonization and settlement. We acknowledge sovereignty was never ceded and a treaty was never signed. Good morning and welcome to 3CR Wednesday Breakfast on the 7th of March, our first first brekkie show for, for March, is that right? Yeah. It is for we, autumn. <laughs> it, is, it is. We saw out um, summer last week. Excellent. We did. We yeah. said farewell. Oh, Some did. tears. Some tears, and now we can feel autumn well and truly upon us with that fresh, fresh morning out there. And I've still got that the tail end of this cold that I got last week. Yeah, and you're bringing <laughs> the authentic voice of a seasonal change. <laughs> and mine is just starting. <laughs> what a morning. Hey, well, but um, on uh, our agenda for this morning, because we do have quite the agenda for this morning and um actually a lot of our agenda is dedicated to uh tomorrow uh which is international women's day and on uh 3cr between midnight and mid uh day tomorrow uh there will be all women broadcasting a number of uh live and pre-recorded programs so please tune in for the special broadcast for international women's day but we've put together a uh, a lineup that uh that sort of um does uh, reflects that as well so what have we got coming up it does Hmm. well um later in the show we're going to hear from uh, dr maria tanyag that's after eight o'clock and she's going to be talking about her new project which is gender and climate change and looking at um you know how we need to pay attention to the disproportionate uh, experiences that women have are affected by climate change so more on that later Mm, and stay tuned, I hear there's some fireworks in there. She's also got some exciting personal news. <laughs> <in there. laughs> That's right, we're like that. <laughs> yeah. um, we've also got Tim Jones coming in. It's his monthly segment this year, or oh, this month, this autumn. So stay tuned for Tim. It's always a special treat to hear what's happening up in his brain waves. Yeah, he's a cultural historian from La Trobe, and uh, yeah, he's watching what's going on in Parliament, I think. Mm, and then we've got Grace Sweeney coming in. Um, she's talking about she's from the Home Birth Association in Melbourne, talking about birthright to march that's happening out in Hastings tomorrow at eleven. Did you uh, come across across Grace because of some of your own life ventures, Patty? Possibly, Possibly. yes, I definitely <laughs> did. I think. Just you know, not giving away too much. But yeah. <laughs> actually, geez, it must not be long now. Two months. No, months? no, four months. Four, about, okay. about halfway okay. through. It, halfway all right. through. Yeah. If all goes to plan, that is. If all yeah. goes to plan. Um, and then we've got Miranda Sharp coming in from the Melbourne Farmers Market. We've heard a little bit from their neck of the woods. Um, there was a food forum not happening long ago in Melbourne, but there's also a food hub happening out in Elphington with lots of different organisations yeah, out there to close the Yeah, just down the street loop. from me. I'm all excited to hear about that. Mm. Yes, and uh, we're going to New Zealand as well this morning to uh, speak to Dr. Amanda Thomas about a paper that she and her colleagues have written on the representation of uh, environmental activists in the media in New Zealand. So that's quite fascinating, and I think we have similar things going on here. But this morning, first up uh, in the studio, um, I have a uh, uh, somebody who's um, I've known for a number of years through, I, I guess, my extended tribe, I, I, I suppose you would call it. You know how 
through the through church communities, right? You get your people know know people through the through the different churches, and that extends out. Well, I guess um, I'd call Dorf my church, right? And <laughs> through that, <laughs> I've met a I've met a, a number of people, a number of fantastic people, um, doing all sorts of work. And one of those people is uh, Jesse Lee. Jesse Lee, welcome to the program, and thank you for getting up nice and early for Hi, us. Thanks for having me. Uh, now, we brought you in today because uh, you're a, a passionate advocate for uh, disability rights, but maybe le- uh, let's start off with um, what, what brought you to this and what, what particular interest do you have in, uh, in disability advocacy? Yeah, okay, so... Um, and a bit closer. I thought about this recently. I actually started disability work 18 years ago. But that being said, I have not been doing disability work consistently for 18 years because that would be impressive. Uh, but I did go into, you know, the standard service delivery model, which is sort of like the group settings that people uh, most generally end up in. And uh, I guess uh, that sort of style, that approach d- didn't really sit well with me, you know, uh, because it just doesn't give people the best opportunity for a fulfilling and authentic life. So I think it was about eight years ago I sort of moved away from that group uh, setting Um, So I only really work, you know, when I can really get people included within their local communities, uh, living authentic, fulfilling lives, that's... So the, the group work, just to just to contextualise this, is this um, maybe uh, I, I'm trying because I, I haven't done disability work myself. Is this when you would be looking after a group of people with a, a variety of different? Um, yeah. So in the eighties, uh, the government deinstitutionalised uh, disability services, but all that that really meant was that they closed down the larger institutions and replaced them with smaller institutions. So basically, like. A life, you know, day in the life of a person with a disability is you wake up in your community residential unit with a group of other people with disabilities that you may or may not have anything in common with. Then you get on your white bus and you travel to an ATU, an adult training unit, where you do programs that have very little educational value, very little, you know, community uh, value at all. And then you get back on your white bus and go back to your community residential unit. So basically, there's just like very little opportunity for community engagement, um, community inclusion, just meaningful work, meaningful lives. It sounds like a very isolated kind of uh, way of going about things. And yeah. um, I imagine for a lot of people um, that is not the kind of life that they're looking for and it would feel a bit... I try to think of what I would want for my life, you know, and I moved out of home. I got myself meaningful work. I'm, you know, I'm studying to achieve things. So, you know, it really doesn't matter what someone's perceived cognitive ability or physical ability may be. We really need to try and get people into um, authentic roles, you know, yeah. I mean, what, it sound, From what you're describing, it sounds like they closed down bigger institutions, which I understand was recommended, you know, yeah, as that's a, you great. Know, better to go to community. <laughs> but they haven't moved out of their institutional way of thinking they've they've made the institutional smaller yeah and, and it's from what you're saying are very much reg still regulating the lives of people that's exactly what's happening yeah so how are you looking to uh change this what are, what changes are afoot in the field things that are happening right now like i guess the ndis is a really big one um but that is just still a lot of kinks that need to be worked out with that particular thing like i'm just seeing a lot of you know, uh, people telling me stories of still not being able to get 
the funding for the life that they want and still being pushed into a group service setting. Um, so, I mean, there's still obviously a few kinks that need to be worked out with that. But it was the initiative was started with the intention of giving people the opportunity to have more autonomy over their lives. And so I still have hope. <laughs> Do we know with with the NDIS? Is it um, is it uh, being rolled out smoothly? Is it taking a long time for funding packages to come through that people can actually access and do something it's, with? Or it's happening differently for different people, and I think that there is a bit of an issue, like some kind of you know disjunction between uh, the people that are working, their understanding of how to uh, provide the right kind of services. So you know. I'm seeing people that aren't able to get things that they desperately need um, for very strange reasons. Like there seems to be a discrepancy between disability and health, even though long-term disability causes health problems. So I know a person, for example, that has been um, more than once, they've been approved for equipment that they need by an occupational therapist, but the NDIS won't approve it. They won't fund it. And they don't seem to understand that it's a matter of either funding this equipment or funding an extra thousands of dollars per week so that they can have an extra person to look right. after this person's oh, needs. So could this be yeah. something like um, somebody that uh, needs a certain kind of wheelchair, for example, exactly. to be able to get around autonomously without somebody and else? it's becoming an occupational health and safety <coughs> issue for the workers because they can't really continue doing this, you know, lifting and stuff. Yes, mm. lifting is a but huge But the issue. NDIS mm. is saying, well, that's a health problem, not a disability problem, and right. we won't fund it. Oh, <sighs> no. Look, it just occurs to me that we should say what NDIS is. Oh, yeah. Yeah, in so case it's the people national, don't know. National Disability Insurance Scheme. And I think uh, it must have been about five years ago that they came up with the idea and started rolling it out. Um, and it, it's happening, you know, slowly across Victoria and... Yeah, I think it, it came. Did it come out of Julia Gillard's government, and then mm. it's um, slowly I remember been... lobbying for. I remember you know making phone calls yeah. and supporting. It was a big well, campaign I think it was to that get government, it through. They mm. actually brought in a lot of like policy and law to do with inclusion. So that stuff's already there. What we really need now is to educate you know businesses and organisations and people on an individual level to start making inclusive you know practices happen. Yeah. So what are what are some examples of things that um that we could do, that uh, those listening could do in their everyday life to help um, make it easier for people who are uh, disabled in their community, maybe even amongst their friendship groups or family? I guess um, in terms of businesses and organisations, you know, there's heaps of things that you can do to make your place accessible. Um, If you're a business uh, that has people come in often, you know, regularly with disabilities, there's things you can do, like, say if you're a cafe... Um, have the menu set out with pictures so that if someone non-verbal comes in, they can still order <laughs> without needing help. Um, ma- Probably sell more food that way too. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> business plan. Yeah. Yeah, so. um, you know, I guess mm. it depends on exactly what area I'm trying to think about, but there's just so many things that we can all do. And I think, you know, if you're running a program, make sure that it's inclusive of all kinds of people. Make sure it's accessible to all kinds of people. I mean, the whole thing of disability is it's hugely varied, mm. hugely varied. Like one size just does not fit Exactly, all. yeah. My background is with people with complex, like intellectual disabilities and complex needs. But like, you know, like I have this group on Facebook called The Inclusionist 
and you know a lot of the people on there are don't don't have intellectual disabilities to my knowledge they have other kinds of disabilities and yeah there's just such an array of of difference out there there is no one size fits all model which is you know you see that they try to fit this one size fits all model onto people and it just doesn't work but mm. Yeah, it does have to be a a case by case basis because everybody is different. And we're not, you know, that 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 label disabled is not to say that. I mean, it, it doesn't really define what somebody is. It just sort of is is one category that you just throw off to the edge. Then we can have the disabled <laughs> toilet and the disabled space, and yeah. you know these sorts of things. But yeah. really, people have a, yeah. a huge variety. I mean, of this different is where needs. language becomes a big problem in yeah. a sense. We have this one word and. Uh, it doesn't really do, isn't that useful really in describing what's going on? Well, that's why we need personalised individual approaches. And, you know, that all looks good and sounds good on paper, but we actually need to put it into practice. You know, and that's why I'm not really into these group settings, because how can you really give one person the best opportunity to flourish when you've got 10 people all trying to get something out of that, that situation and you've only got so much attention to give each person and time to give each person you can't give people the best quality you know in a group setting when it's not a group setting of their choice like I don't go and only hang out with other people with chronic illnesses and that would be a really weird dynamic if I did you know so it's kind of strange that we say oh you've got dis disability let's just put you with other people with disabilities because mm. you've got something in common yeah yeah, I actually had that experience with um, a friend of mine who had uh, muscular dystrophy, and there was this um, this this night put on for people with like mm. you know muscular mm. dystrophy or, or whatever, and and I was like, oh, I'll I'll go along with you to it because he was sort of interested in seeing what was out there, and we went along, and he was just like. I don't get it. <laughs> Let's go hang out. Like, yep. Real yep. <laughs> inclusion is about making what is already happening in the community accessible to everyone. It's not about designing programs for people that are have differences. And I think that that comes back to a point that we often come across with a lot of um, community groups and, and not for profits that uh, you, you come across these organisations that are um, that are all about trying to understand other people and then make make things and uh, to make their lives better. But there's there's this very sort of patronising way that they uh, will, will understand it if it's not inclusive in the of those people in the process. So you get this sort of top-down approach where they, they try to, uh, these organisations try to make things better for people, but they don't have, uh, as part of their framework for developing things in the first place, the very people that they're talking about in there helping them develop it, and that's where you get this, this disconnect. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's where that phrase, the road to hell was paved with good intentions, comes from. <laughs> Well-intentioned people that have no idea what they're doing, but, oh, gosh, oh, they're, they're helping, though, right? Uh, <laughs> we probably want to avoid that. Yes. yes. Um, finally, is there uh, anything else that you would like to uh, pass on uh, for, for people out there in the community that... Um, uh, that that um, might, I don't know, want to know more? Is there somewhere they can go or is there something else you'd like to so, leave us with? One of the people that I turn to quite regularly is Michael Kendrick. He's a consultant um, on inclusion and my mentor. He's really quite amazing at um, coming up with strategies to help work, to work with people with complex needs. Um, and another person uh, that I often go to is Amy Sequencia who is a non-verbal autistic person that does a lot of blogging uh, online. So, you know, obviously um, when you're working with people with disabilities, you want to listen to the people 
with disabilities and yeah. what they have to say. Absolutely. But that being said, each person with a disability can't speak for everybody else. Yeah. Let's, they can only let's not speak just call for their them own a disabled person. Yeah, they can only <laughs> speak for their own experiences. Exactly. So it is important to, to listen broadly, I suppose. And now um, you mentioned a Facebook group before. Is that somewhere that people could go if they want to join in an ongoing conversation around yeah, these issues? Yeah, so my group is called The Inclusionist and it's just a resource sharing page, you know, for anything to do with inclusion. Excellent. So please, uh, if you are on Facebook, go and check that out. It is called The Inclusionists, uh, uh, The Inclusionist, with no S at the end, uh, and it is a public group. So you can uh, go and join that and continue in this um, conversation. And thank you very much, Jesse Lee, for being up this early and uh, talking to us about this um, very important issue. No worries. Thank you so much for having me. you got to remember, Nainok's a special day for us, fellas. That's a reminder who we are. Every year for NAIDOC Week, 3CR Community Radio gives voice to our Indigenous brothers and sisters through Beyond the Bars, Australia's only live prison broadcast. I am a black, black man. NAIDOC means a lot to me. It's about identity and also about past and present. NAIDOC means a lot to me for my family and my people. And the people forgetting about our rights. You can access audio from current and past Beyond the Bars broadcasts via the 3CR website. Go to 3cr.org.au forward slash beyond the bars and either listen to or download audio from Australia's only live prison broadcast. Happy Nadoff! So um, last week we were talking about um, the Adani campaign and um, with the by-election here in Batman and the, the move by activists to stop the Adani mine. Um, on Monday, I spoke to another person who's interested in environmental activism, and that's uh, Dr. Amanda Thomas. She's a human geographer. Isn't that interesting? Human geography. Human it's what I always wanted to study, you know. I don't well, What really, is uh, human geography, just well, quickly? Well, uh, I mean, I think it's, that, you know, human... Uh, I'm, not gonna not go, I'm not a human geographer, <laughs> so I won't give you a good definition, <laughs> but, I mean, it's, I think, the interaction between people and the environment. And, I mean... I, and there's uh, many lenses on the human geographer and you. how they approach that and how they look at it and how they then give you a bit of information back about what's happening. So is it sort of like an anthropology with a, with a focus on the land that people are connected to, like, you know what? And I'm I'm just so sorry because I didn't I didn't no, no, ask right. <laughs> I didn't ask Amanda that. All I thought when I read it was, I remember a long time ago. This was something I was really interested in, and they didn't have geography at the university I went to, which was yeah. I was thinking it's, yes, it's a cross disciplinary approach. I yes, think it includes yeah. yeah. So 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 anyway, Amanda um, is in the School of Geography, Environment, and Earth Sciences at uh, Victoria University of Wellington in New Zealand. And her main research interest is in democracy, and in particular, environmental democracy. And she will tell us what that's about. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, she and her colleagues recently published an article on how media framing limits public debate about oil exploration, and that was looking at the New Zealand context. So I spoke to her on Monday, and I did start <laughs> by asking what is environmental democracy? Environmental democracy is how we make decisions about the environment and who makes decisions about the environment, access to decision-making and, and the full range of politics that goes on around decision-making. So not just submissions on legislation, but the direct action that's about 
forcing a conversation or challenging particular power interests. There was a lot of changes under our previous government, which was a centre-right national-led government. They had a really strongly developmentalist agenda, so lots of courting of international corporations to come and explore here. We were kind of interested in what was going on to facilitate that, but also the way that communities opposed it and tried to voice their concerns and be active in resisting or contesting what was going on. So we were really interested in how these communities went about creating good discussion and debate about whether we want this here or not. Yes, and so you're talking 2011 there that this was happening. Yeah, so that was when these things particularly kicked off and we started doing this project in 2013, concluded it last month really. So your paper in the conversation reports on six years of research in which more than 50 people are interviewed. I mean, that, that's a huge project to interview that many people. And you included in that climate activists, people representing NGOs and the oil and gas sector and local government, as well as your media yeah. analysis. Why did you do it? Why did we do it? That's a great question. I think all of us have a kind of theoretical interest in democracy, but we're also really interested in social justice and environmental justice. The idea that equitable uh, decisions are made about the environment and there's equitable access to the environment and to good, clean environments, for example. So are all of our communities getting to have a say? And what we were seeing was, no, they weren't. So uh, the boards of Whanau Apanui, they weren't consulted at all about whether they wanted oil and gas exploration in their territorial waters. So who's the group that wasn't consulted? Uh, te Whānau uh, Apanui, so an iwi on um, the east coast of the North Island. So they weren't they weren't consulted about that at all. And that's particularly concerning because Māori never ceded sovereignty, so they haven't ceded sovereignty over their waters. Their sovereignty is obviously not being acknowledged or honoured if consents are being given out for exploration in the water off their land. So that was one of the things you were concerned about, and were other groups also worried about it? So other reasons were that it captured a particularly important moment in New Zealand's history in relation to environmental struggle. A bunch of groups across a number of different cities and towns and regions popped up around that same time. And this was just people, some of whom who had no experience organising activist stuff before, but they were suddenly confronted with exploration vessels in their waters. So, for example, Kaikoura in the South Island, where they have a big whale-watching industry, and then consents were being given out for seismic testing in their waters. And so that community uh, organised as a group called Nodril Kaikoura, and, you know, a bunch of people who have never necessarily done this sort of stuff before and, and trying to have a say, really, about whether this should happen or not. It sounds like a pattern that's emerging in which uh, governments aren't acting in the interests of the people or the future, and so citizen groups are, are rising up or coming into being to actually take up that, that slack, the work that governments aren't doing. Absolutely. Something that we would have certainly noticed and it's a really interesting time with our new Labour-led government here because Jacinda Ardern, our new Prime Minister, before the last election said climate change is this generation's nuclear-free moment. So oh, in the 80s, New Zealand had a big nuclear-free campaign. She said that this is our moment for similar kind of action. But in terms of policy and, and new kind of approaches from this government, we haven't seen anything so. The fight hasn't been won and we're still waiting for strong leadership from our government. Our research has 
suggested some really tangible things this new government can do. So, for example, uh, repealing legislation passed in 2013 that introduced a punishment of jail if you came within 500 metres of an exploration vessel. Yeah, we're getting some of that here too. So I think that's something that we need to be enormously worried about because it got against international conventions that protect the right to protest. I mean, at the same time, there's all sorts of new websites that are popping up that are mostly commentary and, and analysis, which is great. So it is kind of a time of a real change and interesting to see what happens. You also interviewed people from the gas and oil industry. Yeah. What were their yeah. impressions and feelings about all this? Very few people would talk to us from the oil and gas industry, which is a bit disappointing. But the people that we did talk to were really fascinating and, and were grateful for their time. And they were saying things like New Zealand has the highest environmental standards in the world, particularly around health and safety, for example. A lot of them were talking about a transition to clean energy, so looking more for gas rather than oil as part of an uh, energy transition and, and acknowledging climate change. But they also pulled out that um, activists are, are driven by ideology and really we're all driven by ideology like neoliberal yes. economic growth is an ideology yes, and, and they have ideologies too so that was quite interesting to see that in action. And if you've just tuned in I'm speaking with Dr Amanda Thomas. She's a lecturer in the School of Geography, Environment and Earth Sciences at Victoria University of Wellington in New Zealand and she's been telling us about environmental democracy and the way the media frames and reports on environmental activism. In our analysis of media between 2010 and 2014, we definitely saw that there was happening and it tended to be kind of dominated by particular ideas and framings of oil and gas debate. And that was the usual tropes that um, activists are hippies and extremists and are ideological and uninformed. There was bent towards oil and gas being portrayed in that industry as necessary for economic growth and that we need to make some sacrifices, i.e. the environment, for economic growth. If we want to have nice things, we've got to sacrifice the environment a little bit. What happened on the day of the protest in Dunedin in 2016, in the lead-up to a particular action, a blockade of three banks, the ANZ banks in Dunedin, rationale for the blockade was being reported Um, and there was discussion about it and about the issue, which was ANZ to divest from fossil fuels. And then through the course of the day, activists took a tactical decision to move to a third bank. At that bank, the police had, I would probably characterise it as quite a repressive response to the activists and encouraged members of the public to climb across them and use reasonable force in getting across the activists. The media captured video footage of an elderly woman getting kind of lifted across the the activists to get into the bank, even though uh, bank staff and the activists had told her that there was a side door that was open that she could actually use if she really needed to get into the bank. So when you say she was being lifted across, who was lifting her? The police. The police. She also kind of verbally abusing the protesters and, 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 it, and it was in that moment that the reporting changed to the idea that the activists had crossed the line, they'd kind of gone too far with their democratic rights and they were being disrespectful to the public. So this idea that inconveniencing people trying to go about their banking is somehow worse than the inconvenience of climate change that comes about when we continue to invest in fossil fuels.
And one of the things you talk about in your paper was the way media coverage actually limits public debate. One of the things that we argue through our research is that when the media gives very narrow representations of activists and, and the arguments they're making, so for example, that they're extremists, that they're ideological, that they're hippies, it actually limits our ability to debate the issues at hand. So if the, if the attention is on the individual and, and their supposed kind of irrational thinking, they're totally missing the point about what the broader debates are, which are, should we be investing in fossil fuels? What are our responsibilities to distant others and people here that are affected by climate change? What does that mean for the policies that we adopt? Those sorts of things. Yeah, the media has a real role in, in accurately reporting on, on that and in contributing to the debate and discussion about what sort of direction we want to be going in terms of our environmental democracy. And I guess it also has a vital role in a democracy. Yes, absolutely. And I think that's why the kind of changing media scape is, is really interesting and important to keep an eye on at the moment. One of the things that we were really worried about going into the research was that there is a downward pressure on our democracy. So there's negative attitudes towards protesters and direct action, and there, also there were legislative reforms that made it harder to protest. So there was definitely evidence of those things happening. But at the same time, talking to communities and seeing the work that they did and the things that they created over the course of our research was incredibly inspiring, not something that I expected to find so hopeful and the work they're doing is amazing and I see some similar kind of stuff happening in Australia so there's never been a better time to take action for better environmental decision making and it was such a pleasure to work with those groups and understand what they're doing. And that was Amanda Thomas, Dr Amanda Thomas from the School of Geography Environment and Earth Sciences at Victoria University of Wellington. And uh, so many of the things she spoke about are really happening here in Australia, particularly legislation preventing people from um, protesting and from exercising their democratic right to protest. Now, at the beginning of the show, Nick announced, and I think we're all very aware it's International Women's Day tomorrow. And uh, over the years, women have been very active in protesting and on the environment. In November 1983, over 700 women gathered in the Red Spinifex country near Alice Springs and set up camp near Pine Gap, the Joint Defence Space Research Facility. And um, one person, I, I don't know if she was there, but she was inspired to write a song about it, and that was Judy Small. So we're going to hear her song, Futures Exchange. And that was Judy Small with her fabulous song of Futures Exchange. And uh, yeah, she did so much wonderful work on women's issues, singing about women's issues. In the 80s, she's a judge now here in Victoria. So she, at the moment, she's not uh, performing. But, um, you know, I think there'll be a comeback. Well, but, hey, being a judge is a kind of performance. Oh, yes. oh it is true. And you got to dress up for I it. Have no doubt. Follow the she's, script. She's, she's brilliant. Yeah. This is... Oh, that's, that's uh, a great piece of context here at 3CR Radio. And another strong person doing a lot of great community work is Miranda Sharp, our next guest in the studio. Um, you're the managing director of the Melbourne Farmers Market um, who have just slotted into the Elphington Food Hub that's happening 
down the road. Um, welcome. Thank you very much. Um, I was hoping you could start off by telling us just what is the food hub and how's it going to look like down in Elphington? Well, it's it's been a um, come from a, a number of um, aspects and and many years of of um, being in Melbourne in local food in local food, trying to trying to bring um, a number of groups together and projects that centre around a local food system in a place uh, where we can collaborate better, um, share resources, encourage and support one another. And on a very practical level, um, provide uh, facilities for, for people, particularly the, the uh, local farming community in Victoria, when they come to Melbourne, particularly um, generated sort of by our coming to our farmers markets, that they can make the most of the trip in, um, add value to it, as we as we say, um, but also to to have a very practical um, connection with the with an urban community, um, and in um, facilities like storage and cool room mm. space. And having a look at the ride up because it is in a physical space that people can quite get in, in and around. Yeah, there's obviously a lot of work going in to create it, but it sounds like that cross section of the urban and the um, rural producers. It's going to be a great place there because there's going to be workshops happening there. There'll be a lot of different skill shares, I suppose, and a chance for people to see how food is produced, where it's produced and who produces it. Yeah, that's that's exactly right. It, it'll have a number of faces to it. One of one of which um, central to us is is a weekly Sunday farmers market on site, um, and by nature, the a marketplace of any variety. When we get together. You know, fantastic things happen. There's a there's a, a very direct and personal connection and relationships come about, and we've seen that over many years of um, of having established a number of markets, and we want to formalise some of those um, those interactions on the one hand, but we mainly we want to build them. We want to we want to provide more opportunities for farmers to be able to. Um, you know, build on the the trip and and the the uh, the networks that that other people have. And and it sounds like it's not it's not open yet, or or. No, it's not open yet. Melbourne Farmers Market has moved to the site. There's a large amount of concrete that still needs to <laughs> right, be. Right, right. Uh, <laughs> yes, there are a few. There, are, there's um, there's some work to be done, shall we say? It's the old um, Darabin uh, Council Depot, okay. and a fantastic okay. piece of land just directly opposite Elphington Train Station. Oh, so it's got very great Public transport yeah, and. For a neighbourhood that I happen to know very well, it's been a piece of land that's, um, that that now, you know, people are very enthusiastic about being sort of opened up into the community to be a shared space. Is this, is this um, just getting my uh, local geography on, is this also land that backs down onto the Darabin Creek there? It, it's part of the Melbourne Innovation Centre, which does back onto the creek, and our northern border is the boundary is the Darabin Parklands, which oh, fantastic. is an extraordinary piece of... So that, that whole area, when, when, it's, um, when you've done doing what needs to be done to it, will be just... A, a gateway to that area. The new bike path is exactly. just about finished. Exactly. It sounds beautiful. Yeah. <laughs> that's it. And so um, there's also Phoenix, there's different organisations coming in here to get different people into the workforce and mixing around this sort of 
Community Hub. Can you tell us a little yeah. bit about that org? Uh, yes, absolutely. Well, we've been incredibly fortunate to um, to be working with Sustain, the Australian Food Network, um, who have been successful in a grant from the uh, Lord Mayor's Charitable Foundation. And that's going to enable um, the establishment of an urban agriculture project. Um, so literally, it's, it's all above ground, but um, quite a substantial area and some incredible um, organisations involved who will make... Um, uh, the, um, I think produce in in all definitions uh, great things out of a out of this opportunity, and they include uh, Melbourne Polytechnic for the training oh, aspect yes. of things, yeah. and Street, the uh, wonderful organisation taking young unemployed people through, in this case, um, horticulture, whereas previously it's been hospitality. So, mm. you know, and and then have um, a kitchen space and a retail space and um, the being surrounded by people uh, either in business or in, in small horticulture businesses with, where there might be a future for, for young people in, in agriculture. Um, but also, but just to mix mix up our, our different enterprises together to to show what can be done. It, it sounds it sounds really good. Is there a, going to be a gala opening? Do you have a, a timeline on when when it will all begin? Our farmers market will start on Sundays on the twenty fifth of of March. Oh yeah! Oh, I'm very excited now. <laughs> Get your calendars out, everyone. <laughs> yeah, um, there's a long way to go on on the site in preparation well, it's a huge before pro- that. I mean, it's but a huge uh, project. Yeah, yes. but we've had um, we've had two actually in the Alfington train station <laughs> car park um, to date, uh-huh. and they've just um, the pop ups as we've been moving one of our, our Fairfield farmers market, and they've been fantastically successful. And a great, great. great oh, uh, so good it's to sort hear. of really shown how the neighbourhood um, has responded in a in a kind of um, in a very invested way. You know, mm. people wanting to get involved and 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 share and contribute to this space as well as just simply going about their food shopping. Mm. So we'll put all uh, links to that so that you can put that in your diary up on the Three CR Wednesday Breakfast Facebook if you want to go and uh, and check that out. Um, I'm just it, it is there right I know this isn't helpful that's, for that's you out exactly there in Radio right. Land but yeah, yeah. 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 he's got, <laughs> got a big dot on his screen it's in Elphington I reckon he'll share that on yeah yeah. yeah. I'm going to take a picture of that I'll share that <laughs> yeah, on Facebook yeah. so you can have a look at that but um, yeah that sounds really good I'm, I'm always excited by these projects and because there's so many like, I'll, I'll, I'll sorry just share a quick anecdote with you but there's so many of these areas I've noticed out um, along the Maribyrnong River so many areas that um, were completely developed for industrial purposes and I think over in the Maribyrnong area they, they used to have an, a munitions factory as well so there's all sorts of stuff they've got to yes, clean up that's right. but they're these fantastic that. areas that, yeah. that need to be used and need to be given back to the community and yeah. um, and, and work and with what we've got in, yeah. in, develop, in, in redeveloping open space and, and what would otherwise might be degraded spaces but is certainly vacant and, and available we need to occupy yes. <laughs> <laughs> occupy is the word <laughs> well, thanks so much for coming in, Miranda. It's been a pleasure to hear what's happening down there. And it'll be definitely a hoot to check out the works that need to be done and what are being done over the farmers' markets. Thank you. Thank you for occupying the space. You're here on 3CR <laughs> Wednesday Breakfast. <laughs> Camp Anarchy is on again from March the 10th to the 12th. 
bringing anarchists, their families and those interested in anarchist ideas together in a relaxing bush setting to share ideas, skills, food, music and laughter. Workshops include creative action, mischief and mayhem, cooperative housing, radical parenting, street medics, building real-life communities, global warming's local effects, transformative justice, military in Australia and much more. For more info, check out www.campanarchy.org or search for Camp Anarchy 2018 on Facebook. Camp Anarchy is a 3CR supporter. Listeners, do not forget 3CR, International Women's Day, Thursday the 8th of March. Talk Back With Attitude, 10 till 11, an all-women's affair for the day. So call in on 94190155. We would love to have some attitude from all the women out there and wish them all a happy International Women's Day. CR Wednesday breakfast with Nick, Paddy and Judith uh, heading for a top of 29 degrees today and sunny 29 for Thursday, 29 for Friday and 31 on Saturday just to, you know, change it up a little bit. Uh, it is about uh, 13 minutes away from 8am. And right now in the studio we have Grace Sweeney from Melbourne Home Birth Association um, who's here to talk about the March for Birthrights that's happening tomorrow in Hastings from 11 A.M. Welcome, Grace. Thank you. Um, thanks for being here. I was hoping you could just tell us a little bit about what the Melbourne Home Birth Association is to get a bit of context and then move on into this march that's happening that's gathering a bit of groundswell by the look of things. Yeah, of course. Well, we are a group of uh, mothers and midwives. We meet once a month um, in Northcote and we do um, advocacy work calling for reform to our maternity system. So we have a focus on home birth because we think that's a really good vehicle for a lot of change in our maternity system, but we more broadly advocate for human rights and childbirth. Mm. And so what is, what's driving this march for you? Obviously, the Melbourne Association really speaks loud for that, but trying to get a lot of other people in there. Is there an educational program element to this march and just an awareness? Um, I think the march has grown out of a, a reaction to what we're seeing um, in terms of women's experience of our maternity system. We've got a crisis in the Australian maternity system. One in three women experience uh, trauma, mental trauma, as a result of the way they're treated in our hospitals. That's just not good enough. Uh, 5% of women develop PTSD. Suicide is the leading cause of maternal death in Australia. But you would never see it from any of the, the maternity policy that's put out from the government. So we're just tired of being ignored. Mm, and so this is one way to try and get those voices heard. You've got a campaign running at the moment, which is hashtag March for Birthrights and different people putting um, signs up, which is a really good way to get, um, I suppose, the multi-perspective on why people are marching yeah. tomorrow. Women are just taken to Instagram, taken to Facebook um, to share their stories um, on that hashtag. Big time. Um, well, that's so great. And how do you think it'll help um, inform inform the policy that may go forward in into the future with uh, with maternity care? Well, 
it's, this is all happening at a fortunate time. The day after we meet, um, the government has convened a new advisory group for the new National Maternity Services Plan. Unsurprisingly, consumers are underrepresented on this panel. Two out of the 23 organisations are represented by consumers, so women's voices are ignored once again. But we're hoping, given that our march is happening on the eve of this meeting, they might be going into this meeting with a few of our, you know, demands ringing in their ears and there might be a bit more of a woman-centred focus on this new plan. Mm, that would be great to see. And what if you were in that position, what would be, if you were at that board, what would be your advice to give to them? Would it be listening to those voices, but more, could you give a specific on just a few examples that they could follow to implement some changes? Yeah, so what we're calling for... Um, we're calling for a task force focused on birth trauma. Um, so that needs to identify um, the, the causes driving our birth trauma rates, driving um, our maternal suicide rate. Um, so we need a task force to identify what's causing that and try to identify some solutions. Pardon me, some solutions. Um, we're calling for there to be a human rights focus in this new plan. So we need to see those rights explicitly laid out in the document, as well as guidance notes for how... Um, health professionals can protect women's rights in this vulnerable time. Yeah, so are there some practices, uh, I mean, I know you're supportive of home birth, of course, but uh, also are there practices within a hospital system if people do choose to go there or, or for, for whatever reason, are there some things that could be done better in the hospital setting? Yeah, definitely. Um, there's a power discrepancy between the woman who chooses to access the hospital and the hospital as an institution. So the experience for a lot of women is quite disempowering um, and they have the experience where they can't either get the care they need or they get care they don't want. My organisation speaks to women on a regular basis who've had um, procedures such as episiotomies performed on them without consent. That's assault. That's a breach of the woman's human rights. Now, can I just, with, with regard to an episiotomy, I mean, at which point is that decision made during the birth process? Or is it something that when you say the woman isn't consulted with, or is it something that should be part of the discussion prior to the person ever reaching the point of going into hospital? Both. But we know that if consent isn't contemporaneous, it's meaningless. Right. Okay. And when you say contemporaneous? If, if it doesn't happen at the point, if the doctor isn't having a conversation with a woman and saying, I'd like to do this procedure, right. do you consent to this? Yes. That's yes. not consent. Yes. I understand. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So we'd like to see that standard for consent really enshrined in the document. Mm -hmm. We'd mm -hmm. like to see um, respect for the woman's right to autonomy. Um, in this document and some ways that health professionals can deliver on this. Right. Because most women's experience is they're only able to choose from a couple of predefined choices. And that's mm. not really meeting her needs as an individual. Right. Yep. Mm. I, just to uh, share a recent experience, because we've had, uh, uh, me, my partner and I have had uh, two children. Um, one who's two months old, the other one's two, two and a half years or three years nearly. Um, and we had two very different experience at uh, the Royal Women's, yeah. I'll, I'll name because it's a hospital that lots of people go yeah. to and it's worth talking about the, the names here. And yeah, two very different experiences. And the, the second time around, it did seem like uh, since the, that time that we had our, our first child, um, that they were a little bit more um, engaged, but we also had, we were also part of some special program. Was it the Cosmos program? It was yes, the Cosmos yes. program, um, which, uh, which seemed to give us a lot more yes. options and a lot more, there was a lot more discussion going on. Plus then my partner also got a, um, 
uh, we we hired somebody. Uh, I guess you'd call it a, a doula or yeah, something like yep. that. Um, but that really helped. But it, it really shows you. You basically need. It's like going. You know, when you, when you go and engage with the legal system, you need a lawyer, like yes. a translator. It's almost like that. You need to have somebody who's like your translator between you and the hospital, because otherwise you're just check boxes. Definitely. And, and and suddenly they're doing things, and you're like, what? What? <laughs> what is happening now? And I think... Is it too late to say no? Yeah, I'm not on board with this. Yeah. Well, and it's really interesting. I think there's a lot of parallels between, you know, rape culture and what we're seeing in maternity. And it, it's surprising that there's almost this expectation that women lose the right to say what happens to their body in maternity care for the good of the baby, you know, quote unquote. But a healthy baby isn't all that matters. Um, I think your experience with the Cosmos program kind of speaks to what we're calling for. Um, uh, one of our items is we want continuity of care um, for women. The Cosmos program is an example of that. Mm. And I know for me, um, so I planned a home birth, but I transferred to hospital. Um, and along the way in my birth story, there were three tipping points um, where having that continuity of care meant the narrative that I internalised was one of triumph instead of trauma. Um, and because you've had that person walking with you, um, I imagine you were in a lot better experience and better place because of it. Right. I have a feeling that the um, continuity of care is not just something that needs to uh, um, needs to be uh, brought more into uh, maternal uh, health care, but just health care in general. Definitely. Because otherwise you literally do turn into whatever's written on that sheet that they've got and it's, it's dehumanised yeah. and um, you get people that are running around, they've got too much on their mind and they've got this, this and this they know about you and it's, it's not helpful. I mean, power is is a big issue, as you say, because first of all, there's the power of the whole institution, yes, and also the fact that the institution wants to run reasonably efficiently, yes, yes, and then the power of you know the medical authority, and versus the woman. I mean, that's why so many there was a big women's health movement back in the as part of second wave feminism, yes. And the, I remember living in North America, there was a book called Our Bodies Ourselves. Yep, that was a bit of a Bible back then and it was written by women and women who were some were physicians and some were community activists and uh, it was like the go-to yep and for all those reasons so and i think your point that you know the, the baby the fetus is valued but the woman is not is a huge problem because the well-being of both <laughs> yeah i mean the well-being of if you care just about the child the baby the fetus um you know, you've got to care about the woman, but there's better reasons to care about the woman than just that. No one cares about the baby more than the mother in that room. Absolutely. But Absolutely. our maternity system cuts her off at the knees. It makes her, you know, psychologically vulnerable. And then it hands her a baby and said, you know, now you've got a newborn. Um, we need women to be going into, you know, the newborn period into parenting with, from a position of strength. But so many of them are recovering from trauma in this time. Mm. We certainly need to think more. I mean, this is, uh, come, this is a, a point that we raised earlier in the program. I think it comes up in a lot of our interviews, a lot of the people that we speak to, that we often have these um, ways of going about things that are people wanting to help people but never speaking to the people that they're wanting to help about yes. how they want to be helped themselves. Yes. Um, we, we seem to miss that step and think we know better than the people that are actually the ones that need whatever it is that they need. And we forget to ask them, hey, what do you actually need? And that's, yeah. And, mm. and that's a large part of what's driving this experience of trauma for a lot of women, just not being spoken to, not being treated as a human with 
autonomous needs. Mm. And so what do you say to people who can't get down to the march and sort of start to voice that in a collective but also in a personal way? How can people contribute if they have to work or can't quite make it down to Hastings tomorrow? If you can't make it down there tomorrow, I'd love it if you can add your own march, hashtag March for Birthrights image. We're on Instagram, we're on Facebook, we're on Twitter. So we're compiling these and we're going to be sharing these with the government going forward and just adding your voice for change. Mm. And where are people going to be gathering? So we'll be gathering out the front of um, Federal Health Minister Greg Hunt's office, which is at 184 Salmon Street in Hastings. Beautiful. Thanks so much, Grace, for coming in and sharing your insight and your passion. And I hope many people get behind you tomorrow. Thank you. 3CR Wednesday Breakfast, this is Clancy Milne. Make sure you get to the International Women's Day Rally and March in 2018. It's on Thursday the 8th of March at 5.30pm at the State Library. Hear from extraordinary women activists, including unionists, disability rights activists, Aboriginal women and those campaigning against police repression. Join working women across Victoria for IWD on Thursday the 8th of March at 5.30pm at the State Library. We have a world to win. It's 3CR Wednesday breakfast, uh, about five minutes past eight. It is, and we now have Maria Tan, Dr. Maria Tanyag on the phone. She's from Monash Gender Peace and Security Centre in the Faculty of Arts. And uh, last year, Maria spoke to us about her PhD research, which was on the sexual and reproductive rights of women in post-conflict and post-disaster settings. She's now a fully-fledged doctor, and we're quite excited about here that she is on the line. We're quite excited. We get excited about people becoming fully-fledged doctors here at 3CR Maria. So we're just going to have a moment of celebration and fireworks. Oh, thank you, guys. i got to say, like, the fireworks in the 3CR studio are a fire hazard. Uh, <laughs> Before nine o'clock, so it's not too hot outside. Yeah, true, true. <laughs> yeah, we think we think we're okay. Anyway, Maria, welcome back to Wednesday Breakfast, and big congratulations from us. And you're involved now in in a new project. Actually, I think you were doing some work on this when we spoke last year yes, in yes, uh, November. True. But uh, yep. and it's called Gender Responsive Alternatives. This is a mouthful. On, yes, on, clim- on climate change. Correct. So tell us about it. Yes, well, firstly, good morning to um, your listeners, and it's a great pleasure to be back on the program. Um, it's been such a fantastic opportunity last time. I just want to keep coming back. Well, we're happy <laughs> to have you. And International <laughs> Women's Day tomorrow, and we know you're interested in women's issues. So Absolutely. Um, yeah, so for this project, I think you're right. It's definitely building on some of the work that I've been doing in the past and the specialization of our research center, which is really understanding um, from women's experiences how we can make sense of all these ongoing crises that uh, we are experiencing at the global level. And climate change often in many parts of the world intersects with conflict, um, health pandemics, economic recession, and and all other forms of um, everyday displacement, such as development and poverty. Um, So for this project, what we're really trying to understand is 
um, trying to bridge women's daily experiences and the kind of knowledge that are produced from their daily experiences and try and bridge that to global and national decision-making bodies um, in order for our upcoming climate change agenda to be more gender responsive. Um, when we say gender responsive, what we're actually trying to capture here is the fact that um, women, because of their social roles as caregivers, are most dependent on natural resources. Um, in many parts of the world, um, women are in charge of food provisioning. So they're often the ones traveling to collect water, to collect um, fuel, um, and therefore, because of these social roles, they have, are at the forefront of environmental changes. They, they can tell when, um, when the water bodies or when rivers are slowly drying up because of that social role. It's um, very, you know, just even hearing you say that, it just makes it so tangible. You know, exactly. you, you go to get your water. It's not there. There's not much of it. And that really brings home what climate change means uh, for many. Um, one of the things you say in, in, your, in the project brief mm. is that women are disproportionately affected by climate change. So Cara, you've described some of that with the, their roles in collecting water and producing, the, and producing food. But are there other kinds of things that, uh, that affect women in climate change? Absolutely. And again, because we're starting from women's experiences, you know, talking about them as caregivers, um, when a disaster happens, um, for instance, drought or flooding, um, who has to take care um, of um, uh, the sick, the infirm or the disabled in times of crises such as this? It's, it's the women. And in times of resource shortages, um, again, tied to land or water, um, women have that burden of Okay, we have to improvise. What do we What do we then do to make sure that all these care needs are met? And so, in times of climate change, where we're seeing ever shrinking resources, um, uh, women have to take on that burden, and it intensifies their care burden. And what happens? And there have been studies that already show that intensification of care burdens that they had to meet actually have a knock-on effect to their own health and well-being, right? Um, often yes. we've already heard about, you know, women, because of their social and cultural roles, tend to be self-sacrificing. And, and this is the problem because it is a socially constructed norm around women have, having to be giving everything and being responsible for everything, their families and their communities, and they would put their own needs last. Yes, you know, at the and, bottom of the priority. And one of the things you mentioned earlier was talking about, you know, being informed by women's experience. And yes. uh, and uh, I'm wondering how are women, how is women's experience neglected or or not considered during current responses to uh, climate change and changing weather systems? Um, that's a fantastic question, and that's at the heart of what we're trying to study. You know, because there have been already studies to show that women are um, multiply burdened. They suffer immediate and long-term harms when there's disasters, there's conflict, and broadly, you know, changes in the environment. But we need to be mapping where are the women in these key decision-making bodies from the community at the national and global levels. And we already know, again, at the global level, whether it's peace negotiations or economic decision-making, that women aren't at the peace 
and financial and climate um, negotiation tables. So why are they not there? I think, again, it goes back to the idea that, well, they number one, they are faced with so many burdens responding at the forefront of climate change. And, and that sort of burden affects their capabilities, um, their political and economic levels of participation for them to even get to the point of global decision making. And, and um, quite aside from that, who's usually at the table for global decision making? <laughs> okay. Exactly. So they're not there because um, uh, many of these decision making bodies are male dominated and they are shaped by norms that privilege um you know, masculine types of leadership. Um, um, and again, we're trying to challenge these um, at all levels, these assumptions that we have about who has a say or who has authority over climate decision-making um, at the global level. And we see that, you know, the kind of this, the, the kind of experiences women have or how they understand climate, like their impact on their body and health and well-being and the, the, the sustainability of their families, that's very different from our climate change negotiations, which tend to be about technocratic, technical discussions about yes. carbon emissions, right? In, indeed. So I'm wondering, I mean, the project seeks to strengthen women's voice and leadership in responding to climate change. Correct. So how, how, how can that happen? How can you do that? I mean, how do you imagine doing that? Um, so the project is very much participatory. So this is, um, again, slightly different from the kind of work that I've done in the past in, in the sense that we're working with communities. And this project is in partnership with uh, an international um, NGO, Action Aid, um, And they have been doing a lot on building women's capacity and resilience to climate change in many parts of the world, including Kenya, Vanuatu, and um, Cambodia. Yes, I was going to ask which countries you'll be working in. Yes, there's, uh, so we're working on three countries, um, Kenya, Cambodia, and Vanuatu. And these three countries are experiencing different manifestations of climate um, change and also different levels of mobilization for women and girls and men and boys. Um, and finally, they are also exhibiting, at least so far that we've identified, you know, how climate intersects climate change um, consequences intersect with other forms of insecurities. Yes, um, I mean, absolutely, that's going to be true. And wouldn't it be great if we can roll back climate change and just um, delay some of the things that we, I think we're all knowing are likely to happen? And, Maria, we, don't, we're, we are slowly running out of time, unfortunately, because... Um, you know, there's just so much that we could talk about Absolutely, here. But, yeah. but I do know that you'll be speaking for people who would like to hear from you more. Uh, you'll be speaking at a Monash event coming up in early May. It's free, which yes. is great. Yes. <laughs> and it's entitled Displacements from Everyday Experience to Global Policy. So can you just say something quickly about that? Absolutely. Thank you so much. Um, and we're very happy to invite um, your listeners, everyone, to attend our public um, lecture or discussion around displacements. And it's building on, you know, the kind of work that we've been doing, thinking about displacements, not just, you know, as out there or such a, a very, um, you know, foreign thing, but something that we, even in Australia, is an issue that we need to be thinking of. Um, and so it's going to be held at the Monash University Law Chambers um, on 7 May 
5.30 to 8 p.m. Um, I'll send the details to, to you guys and, and you can promote it on, on the website. But it would be great to bring in more people to discuss and share ideas and, and think about, you know, solutions Wonderful. more importantly. Yes. Yeah. So, Maria, thank you so much for being on the phone with us this morning. It's, it's been great to connect with you again after meeting you last uh, year and uh, enjoy always your enthusiasm for the work you're doing and congratulations congratulations again on getting your phd dr maria tanya thank you so much it's a pleasure you have a good good morning thank you bye it, it is 3cr wednesday breakfast hello it's fiona scott norman here and i would just like to say congratulations you are doing something very important right now and you want to know what it is you are listening to 3cr Melbourne's most diverse and fascinating community radio station. And you know why it's important? Because diversity is important. Community is important. Community radio is very, very important. And you are a winner. And you Lucky are you. Winner. winner here on 3CR wow. Wednesday Breakfast. <laughs> hey, hey, hang on. While, while we're hanging on that, 3cr.org.au if you would like to become a subscriber or donate in any way because we get up early for you. We're not getting paid for this, but we're passionate about it and the more money and support that you can give to this organisation, the more we can continue doing this stuff. Mm. And yeah. on a further note, if you can't get up every morning, you can always reconnect with the show on 3cr.org slash Wednesday Breakfast or hit the podcast there, Wednesday Breakfast, on all the different platforms there but right now we have a very exciting guest very exciting guest dr timothy jones a cultural historian with interest in gender sexuality and religion and uh, research expertise in british australian and american history and he's here this morning to talk to us about what's been happening morning everyone good morning (laughs) so uh last month i was talking about I was, I was kind of optimistic about cultural change. Mm-hmm. You were very optimistic. Uh, and I, I want to continue that. that theme this week. Yes. Uh, starting with the Oscars. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> oh. So the Oscars was quite different this year. Uh, it had quite a political focus uh, around sexual assault and, and harassment, uh, building on the momentum from the hashtag MeToo movement last year. Um, and I wanted to give a bit of context to this to think about how these moments of change and political consciousness can work because it's kind of great to think yes uh sexual assault and people's experiences of sexual assault uh, have been enabled to come out into the public uh, at this time Uh, and it does feel like real change is happening Mm. um but that change isn't necessarily always good it can go in different directions uh when the hashtag me too thing started last year i thought it was good but it also made me a bit uneasy like People yes, maybe there was not... controversy about it. Yeah, so people were maybe uh, felt compelled to come out, um, but also the way in which hashtag Me Too happened, it conflated lots of kinds of different experiences. Uh, you know, there's a, there's a vast difference between rape, sexual assault, and sexual harassment. Even and even within all of those categories of offence, there's very mild offences and very grave offences, uh, and in the responses to them. Um, it seemed like it was a bit of a blunt tool, particularly in the media. So initially, you know, it started with Harvey Weinstein and it sounds like, you know, he was pretty gross. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, to say the least. Yes, indeed. Um, But then uh, when Kevin Spacey came out, the first uh, allegation about him was like, you know, sexual harassment. He made unwanted advances. Um, But then he apologised straight away. uh, And later on it came out that 
well, you know, he, he probably did worse things. But um, anyone anyone who was accused of being of having sexually harassed was being lumped in with rapists, and the response was to be blackballed or you know without due process. There wasn't investigation, so it was quite a blunt tool for um, dealing with uh, change. And it reminded me uh, of an historical episode. Um, (laughs) (laughs) everyone's smiling at me Um, in the studio Uh, but I am a historian Uh, and I think it helps us to think about change in the present to look at change in the past Yes. Um, and I was reminded of this like one of my favourite episodes for for teaching in the history of sexuality is the the story of the white slave trade Uh, do you guys know about the white slave trade? no this will be new to me I mean uh, vaguely but so so there was this uh, panic in the late 19th century 1880s uh, about women being captured with white women and, and the racial politics of this are quite interesting um, being captured and sold into sexual slavery in Europe so in Britain like innocent white women were being captured and taken into brothels in Europe to serve foreign men in sexual labor uh, and there was a particular journalist. There, there, there had been various campaigns to reform sexual law around prostitution, around the age of consent and different things, and it was flagging. Uh, and this uh, journalist, Stedman, who was the first investigative journalist, if you like, um, and created a whole new form of media through this event, um, wrote a series of articles, in, in, which were the different episodes in his investigation into uh, the white slave trade in Britain, in which the culmination of which he actually bought a young girl. <laughs> he reported on this. Yeah, he reported that he bought a young girl. I can't remember how much it was, or five shillings or a pound or something, um, and brought her into a brothel, but then got a medical doctor to come you know, to look after her and all this kind of thing. Uh, and that um, controversy, and everyone was like, oh my God, you can buy a girl for like, I, can't, I should have looked up how, how much it was. It wasn't very much. Um, so he, he was like proving that the white slave, white slave trade existed. Uh, and it led to the passage of legislation, which raised the age of consent from 13 to 16, um, increased the policing of prostitution, which, depending on your politics around sex work, was good or bad. Um, but at the last minute, um, Henry Labuschagne in- included an amendment, um, which uh, inc- which made uh, what was it called? Obscene. Oh, I'm, I'm too tired. Uh, anyway, <laughs> it uh, is early. added criminalisation of, of sex between men. Um, oh. So previously it was just sodomy, but then any kind of obscene behaviour between men um, was oh, criminalised. So in this panic around reforming sex law, oh. the age of consent was raised, um, but then kind of any kind of sex between men was criminalised, and um, it, it rap- rapidly, vastly increased the scope uh, for police to arrest men for having mm. sex with each other. Well, so they just sort of slip that in there on top of that policy yeah. without much Which public debate. Which isn't or, un- yeah. unusual yeah. In, mm. in histories of legislation. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. So it was kind of, it was a pretty blunt, you know, there have been mm. long campaigns to reform aspects of sex law, but in the panic and fervour, yeah. a, a set of other things happened, which mm. um, were not really related, but everyone was kind of like, yes, we've got to reform sex. Mm. And um, so it was kind of a good and bad, it's a, it's a complex moment of change. Yes. And, but the negative and positive things were lumped together because there was a panic 
and we've got mm. to do something about it. We've got to do it now. And very what reactionary, happened? did you see? Did very, looking yeah. back at that, very reactionary and obvious. And then there was an investigation into it, and it was found that Stedman's reporting was all bullshit. Um, he, I mean, I, I'm not. Surprised. He had kidnapped a child. He didn't buy it from their parents. Oh. Uh, his uh, assistants were arrested, and went, he went to jail. So the whole the whole thing um, kind of blew un- up. But the legislation and yep. remained. The, but the legislation remained, <laughs> oh. and was actually um, copied around the British world. So the yes. the legislation in mm. British former colonies that still exists in many mm. places is modelled on the 1885 Criminal Law Amendment Act. So what are you seeing now, Tim? Um, bringing it to the present after having a look at this story and reminding. Yes. What are you seeing? Well, it was interesting. I was um, I was pleasantly surprised at the Oscars because of, of where the, the so the hashtag Me Too last year was like identifying sexual assault and giving particularly women but also men the voice to come out and say you know I've been harassed and assaulted. Um, and I was wondering what was going to happen at the Oscars, but it was quite interesting that they seemed to be actually pushing for more structural change in a relatively considered way. Um, you know, this notion of an inclusion rider so that lead actors and actresses um, can, in their contracts, stipulate that women need to be involved at every level of film and media production. Um, you know, I'm not going to be in this movie unless women are involved at every level. And that kind of structural change could materially change the conditions which allow uh, sexual harassment and assault to continue in the media. And it wasn't just focused on the privileged world of Hollywood. They've amplified voices of women in agriculture and all and, you know, the, the most disadvantaged women in American society uh, have been given voice to sexual harassment and assault in their industries uh, as well. So I think it's, you know, who knows what's going to happen, but it's like these, these moments of panic and change in consciousness do affect real change, but they're also, there's also the potential for change to go awry. Mm. Um, so I think it's just more watch this space. You know, these, yes. the, the Oscars was yeah. celebrated this moment in a particular yes. and unusually yeah. particular way. Um, and I'm mildly optimistic that some of the suggested changes are affecting structural change and cultural change, um, which could be good. Yes, indeed. I like the positive note. I remember looking at the Oscars and a tiny bit of scepticism was creeping in, but that's because I didn't engage fully with the <laughs> I didn't even watch the Oscars. I just, I just read the media coverage the next day. Oh, so the Oscars were on recently, man. Um. <laughs> <laughs> oh, gosh. Well, Tim, th- I mean, when you talk, just going back a minute, when you talked about white slave trade, I mean, of course, it was big in the Australian press as well. Mm, and mm-hmm. what I remember is that uh, Chinese people who were not allowed to bring their <coughs> partners to Australia because the white Australia policy was late 1800s were accused of having white women. Mm. And so there's this big, uh, you know, hoo-ha and big investigation. And they found that the women were there because they had chosen to be there, and many were there to escape violence from their uh, non-Chinese partners. Yeah, there's the intersectionality of it, um, and the, the racial politics in the white slave trade are pretty horrendous. Yes. But I was also really pleased at the Oscars to see in the way, the way in which women of colour were standing up. Um, lesbian yes. women of colour, like so, mm. this this consciousness of women's, um, you know, of sexual assault, who had was. Mm. Spreading out into other areas of disadvantage. I'm, I'm just. It just seems. Mm. Yeah. But on one note, this the Me Too hashtag came from a experience of women of color in America, didn't it? That's where it started, yeah. and then the Hollywood sort of took yeah. it up and then broadcast it to the world because they have that platform and sort of that's yes. how it has yeah. made it across the world, I suppose. Yes. 
This is 3CR Wednesday Breakfast. Thank you very much for um, sharing some historical um, footnotes for us today, Tim. Um, I think it's always important, and, and you're right. I mean, every time that a big change comes through, um, the, the direction of it isn't clear, even though it can seem clear in people's heads. And we need to be careful to, to steer that because things with good intentions, again, I've said the second yes, time I've said this, what's the road to hell sure. paved with? It's just, good intentions. Mm-hmm. Yeah, needs thinking through for sure. Thank you to all of our guests uh, on this morning's program as well. Jesse Lee for talking to us about uh, disability advocacy earlier in the program. And Amanda Thomas for talking about uh, the representations of environmentalists in the media in New Zealand and uh, environmental democracy. It was very important. It was good to get a ear in there. And then Miranda Sharp talking about the latest Melbourne Farmers Market happening down at the Elfington Food Hub. Yes, Make sure to catch the train down there. I will, or even walk. Don't show off now, Judith. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, Dr. Maria Tanyag, who's talking about the, her new project, gender on gender and climate change. And of course, Tim. Wonderful to have you here, Tim <laughs> Thank Jones. You. I yeah. Me. <laughs> and if you want to get down to Hastings and you have the opportunity to support um, Melbourne Home Birth Association in the march for. Uh, maternity choice get down there it happens at 11 a.m tomorrow On at greg hunt's office Women's important Day. important for all of us because we're all babies once and you've all got a mum and somewhere. you're all having babies too i'm mean, not everybody yeah well <laughs> <laughs> yours <laughs> yours are a little 50%. your babies are probably having ba- oh not quite that, that, well they've decided against oh, okay no, <laughs> we're not putting that on to anyone <laughs> either you, <laughs> it is 3cr wednesday breakfast stick together uh is up next and don't, don't forget tomorrow uh, all day it's international women's day with special broad casting uh, on 3CR so please tune in for that we'll see you next Wednesday morning (laughs) wobbly (laughs) wobbly old hey hey maybe that's a good just moment to just say 3cr.org.au if you want to donate to 3CR and help our wobbly studio get onto it (laughs) 